0: Welcome to The Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On The Weekend Edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We started off this week reeling from another mass shooting, this time where 12 people lost their lives in Virginia Beach. Dwayne Craddock was a public utilities engineer who put his two weeks notice in earlier in that day before he indiscriminately started shooting at others at a municipal building. The investigation is still ongoing and no motive has been found. My producer, Miranda, joins us for what we know about this latest tragedy.
1: The police were able to arrive at the building within two minutes of the call going out for shots fired just after 4 p.m. on Friday afternoon. Dwayne Craddock had arrived at building two and immediately shot a contractor who was in the parking lot, and he was only there to file a permit with the city. I know. Talk about bad (laughs) luck. Sad. He next killed a woman who was on her way out of the office before using his employee badge to access the building's second floor and then started shooting indiscriminately. It was really challenging for the police to find him because the building was made in the 70s in what they call a honeycomb design. And right. essentially, it's a maze to people who are unfamiliar with the layout. So they had a really tough time not only finding the suspect, but also finding victims and wounded people.
0: They said when uh, survivors were escorted out, they had to obviously walk over bodies of their yeah. co-workers and things. It's just so sad.
1: Five to eight minutes after entering the building, police officers were able to encounter Craddock on the second floor. They immediately engaged in a gun battle, and eventually the shooting stopped. Police were able to confront him in an office. They broke down the door, engaged him with fire, and he was subdued. 36 minutes after that first call to police went out, that's how long it took to get him down. Yeah. Officers tried to then render aid to save his life, but He died on the way to the hospital.
0: I mean, the officers did a great job. They got there quickly, but that's how long this fight took. Tons of gunfire going back and forth. What do we know about the victims? They're all former co-workers of his. They're all people that he knew. There's no evidence to say that he was targeting somebody specifically just
1: yet. The 12 victims killed in the attack are Richard H. Nettleton. He was Craddock's boss hours before Mr. Nettleton was killed. Craddock told him he was quitting for personal reasons via email.
0: There was Herbert Snelling. He was the contractor who was just trying to file a permit. That's when he got shot.
1: Mm -hmm. Lakita Brown, Mary Louise Gale, and Alexander Mikhail Gusev were all right-of-way agents who worked for the city's Public Works Department.
0: Tara Gallagher, Christopher Rapp, they're engineers with the city Public Works Department.
1: Joshua O'Hardy was an engineering technician in the Public Works Department.
0: Ryan Keith Cox, he was an account clerk in the Public Utilities Department.
1: Michelle Langer was an administrative assistant in Public Utilities.
0: And Bobby Williams, he's a 41-year veteran in the public utilities department and a special projects coordinator.
1: In addition to the 12 people we just named killed, there were other victims wounded. All have had several surgeries and remain in critical condition, except for one who's in fair condition.
0: Everything that's been out from the investigation so far, they say, we don't have anything glaring. There's nothing that necessarily stands out about why he would do this. He did put in his two weeks notice early in the day. Mm -hmm. That's why his employee badge was still active. That's why he was able to access the building. But they've been able to touch base with some neighbors and his parents. What did they have to say?
1: The neighbors said that by all accounts, he was a normal guy, just kind of recluses. He kept to himself. He used to be married and he had a wife who was very social and outgoing. She would talk to people and they often said that they would see her walking the dogs around the complex. But they got divorced a couple of years ago. And one neighbor reported never even having seen the shooter carry groceries in his apartment. But there's one creepy detail about where he lived is that he had cameras set up facing outside of the windows. And I know that doesn't sound strange in this world of smart cameras, doorbell, whatever, but they were pointed at the parking lot. People think it was maybe to keep an eye on his cars or something.
0: He had two guns, two .45 caliber pistols that were found at the scene, one that the shooter bought in 2016 and one in 2018. One of the pistols had a suppressor on it and several ex- empty extended magazines. That's why that was such a long gun battle. They found a bunch more weapons at his home. But that's it. That's really all we know right now. It's just a, another tragedy that the country has had to go to.
1: CNN reached out to the shooter's parents to ask if they knew of any problems that their son was having with his employer And the parents said that they had no clue. They thought everything was fine. And later they posted a handwritten note on their front door saying, we are grieving the loss of our loved one. At this time, we wish to focus on the victims and the lives lost during yesterday's tragic event. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
0: Two quick updates to this story. We did find out what the resignation letter said. All it said was, I want to officially put in my two weeks notice. It has been my pleasure to serve the city. Due to personal reasons, I must relieve my position. So really nothing there to lend itself to what the motive was. He was an employee in good standing, but there were also reports that he had begun acting strangely and getting into physical scuffles with other city workers, something that had culminated with him getting into a violent altercation on city grounds. And they said that there would be disciplinary action taken. That might be why he put that resignation in, but we still don't know. And much of it still remains a mystery. The safety of coffee had been in dispute in California since a state court judge ruled last spring that coffee must carry a cancer warning because of the presence of acrylamide, a potentially carcinogenic chemical created during the roasting process. But the coffee industry scored a big win in California when the judge ruled that the popular beverage did not require this cancer warning after all. We spoke to Sarah Rondazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal, for what to know about coffee in California.
2: Yeah, so it's been a kind of evolving process over the last few years. And to be clear, the warnings don't yet appear on the cups, which is probably why you never noticed them. But a lawsuit that's been in the works for eight years culminated with a ruling a year ago from a Los Angeles judge who said that because of the presence of this chemical called acrylamide in coffee, that people needed to be warned that it's a possible carcinogen and that it could cause cancer. And so that judge's decision then triggered further action from the state resulting in what happened yesterday, which is that the state essentially did a carve out and said, no, 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 coffee does not need a cancer warning.
0: So uh, we've been drinking coffee for so long now, years and years and years, this chemical acrylamide, how does it get into the coffee? What does it do?
2: It's a a chemical that from what I understand is naturally formed during the roasting process. And it's also appears in a lot of baked and fried foods like potato chips and French fries. And so the issue is that Acrylamide appears on this list of 900 chemicals that fall under what's known as Proposition 65 in California. And you've probably seen those warnings all around the state in restaurants and building lobbies and on products at the grocery store. And so acrylamide was listed as a carcinogen on that list because of various places that it appears that that could be harmful. But then acrylamide is also in some of these food products. And so creative lawyers put one thing together and uh, ended up suing over it. Who are the
0: people that were getting sued because I saw a list that included Starbucks, Target, Nestle, even Whole
2: Foods? At least 90 companies were sued, and, and a few settled as the lawsuit went on. It was a very slow-moving case. Like I said, it, it's been eight years, and it still isn't even resolved technically. It was basically people who sold coffee in the state. So Dunkin' Donuts was on there, 7-Eleven was on there at one point. So, it, yeah, it was, it was basically all a range of retailers and coffee sellers.
0: Coffee's been around for so long now. I haven't seen anything else, really, that said that coffee consumption led to an increased risk of cancer. This was just focused on that one chemical. Were there other similar lawsuits? You know, you said it appears in fried foods and things like that. Were there similar lawsuits related to those?
2: There were actually. So the same lawyer who brought this coffee lawsuit first sued over acrylamide with French fries, I believe it was, and also potato chips. And those actually did result in I think potato chip companies actually changed their formulation to reduce the acrylamide. And I I believe some French fries have needed cancer warnings because of litigation against that industry. So there have been some prior lawsuits that were successful for the plaintiffs in the acrylamide space, which is, I think, why the, the coffee one emerged.
0: I'm sure this is a huge relief for uh, heavy coffee drinkers. You know, you don't have to worry about this now. How is the coffee industry reacting to this ruling?
2: All of the coffee companies direct comment toward the National Coffee Association, which is their trade group. And, and the trade association was very excited yesterday. And the president there had a quote that, you know, coffee drinkers can wake up and enjoy the smell and taste of their coffee without hesitation. And, you know, they're declaring victory on this because it wasn't going to be a good look if all of their cups of coffee needed a a potentially scary warning on them.
0: There you go. Feel free to enjoy it now. Sarah Rondazzo, legal reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Of
2: course. Thanks for having me.
0: It was back in April that Walmart announced it was doubling down on robots in its stores to scan shelves and scrub floors and help keep labor costs down and open up employees to what they said would be more fulfilling work. Well, now the rollout has happened, and the results are pretty mixed. Human workers are complaining that they're the ones feeling like the machines. Some customers have reportedly fallen asleep on some of these machines, workers have had to retrain them, and in some cases, engineers had to figure out creative ways to have robots announce themselves to customers so they aren't caught off guard. We spoke to Drew Harwell, AI reporter for The Washington Post, for how these robots are doing at Walmart.
3: These robots are in every part of the Walmart superstore. There's like 1500 stores across the country that have them now. And there's some in the back room that kind of help offload boxes from a truck, sort of making it easier to sort for for the workers in the back. There's some patrolling the floors, uh, scrubbing the floors overnight. There's some that scan the shelves with this beam of light to see which products are out of stock or misplaced. And they all sort of come together as part of the self-checkout and kind of AI camera, huge network that is patrolling the super centers now.
0: They've been having kind of a rocky start. You use an example of this Walmart in Georgia where the floor scrubbing robot, they nicknamed him Freddy or named for a janitor who got let go shortly after this thing rolled in there. And of course, they would nickname him after that guy. So how has that guy been working specifically?
3: That one is, it's cleaning the floors. I mean, it looks like a big Zamboni and it's kind of doing the job that you would expect sort of a custodian or a janitor to do. And what's really interesting is these are being rolled in and taking little tasks from the human workers in a way that a lot of them didn't really expect. And, you know, I think workers in a lot of different workplaces, especially in manufacturing, they've sort of expected that robots would be taking little tasks away or maybe their whole job away. But it's this middle point where it's not all humans doing the work, but it's not all robots either. And, you know, they're kind of having to learn to interact with each other and get along in a way for them to keep the work going.
0: With that little Zamboni in particular, they said that it's kind of suffered these nervous breakdowns it needed increased training sessions which we'll get to in a little bit it takes weird detours sometimes and uh, the workers are just a little frustrated with them sometimes even the cu- the customers how has the interaction been with some of these robots and the customers
3: some of the customers are kind of freaked out as from from talking to the Walmart associates they they weren't really expecting these robots I and mean, i mean you can tell from going into stores that self checkout which is like a very small simple element of like automation how that is Perceived by some people. Oh yeah, it can get, um, it can
0: be cumbersome a lot of times. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And so with some of these robots, the shelf scanning one is like six foot tall. It rolls around at very low speed, creeps up. People who go to Walmart don't always expect to see that. And so it's kind of surprising for some people. And a lot of people said like it's kind of a fun element in the store. People are taking photos of them and talking to them and associate the human employees at Walmart are putting name tags on the robots. There's kind of a fun element to it. But some of the shoppers are also sort of like unnerved by them because they don't understand the capacity. What I mean, what does the robot do? doing? What is it seeing? Can it talk to me? I mean, there's all these sort of new growing pains that shoppers and workers are having to learn as these automation efforts pick up
0: with that shelf scanning robot particularly you said it's like six feet tall it's kind of this looming figure if you're not expecting it they actually experimented with a range of different noises to try to warn the customers that it was coming it's kind of it brings to mind stories about the Prius you know the car was so silent they needed yeah. to add something extra so that pedestrians or whatever knew it was coming so they tested some noises for this robot in, in particular to try to give people advance notice.
3: We're like in a really interesting time for robotics and I was able to sort of meet some of the roboticists in San Francisco who work on those shelf scanning robots and in their lab they have invented like a fake cereal aisle to test the robot on that they built like a battering ram to test its ability to withstand (laughs) shoppers kicking it and, and knocking it over and they also sort of played around with like what kinds of sounds and signals are we going to want to bake into the robot to communicate in its own little simple way to the humans around it to let them know Hey, I'm coming through the aisle. Don't run into me. Don't hurt me. Like, and so you know, this is this is all new stuff, right? Like, there's no real set guide for how humans and robots can interact. So they're kind of having to wing it, and they're kind of having to learn it as they go along. So yeah, the sound thing was really interesting because some of these roboticists said like they wanted something that wasn't too urgent or too alarming. They didn't want some like ambulance siren, but they also needed it to be insistent enough to say like, hey, you know, a six foot robot is coming through. So they tried a lot. Like, <laughs> a lot of different noises, and they ended up settling on, like, this clip of modified bird song that just sort of sounds like a little bit of a chirp. So just enough for you to know something is coming along, but hopefully not enough to, like, freak you out.
0: Back to the auto C, which is that Zamboni thing, the, the little the mini janitor that scrubs the mm-hmm. floors. One of the things that caught my eye from your article was that it had it needed regular training sessions and that mm-hmm. the workers themselves often had to retrain the robots. Explain that to me, because that doesn't make sense to me. I I feel like the robot is put in place, and it should do what it's programmed. How do the workers have to retrain these little robots?
3: The important thing to know about robots is they're really not that smart yet. We talk about artificial intelligence, but they're not anywhere near how we think of intelligent motion. So, you know, they know how to stay within the lines of an aisle. These automatic cleaners can be trained to know which aisles are where, but they still have to be taught in, in a way that any human student would be taught like they have to be driven down the aisles a couple times first to learn the path and they end up just following along that pattern. So it's not the robots independently knowing what to do it's really just that they're pretty sophisticated tools that the humans can bend to their will and and teach how to do a certain thing but that also makes them brittle right and they're easily confused and so when Walmart changes how its aisles look or you know it's Christmas time and they have lots of different stuff or they have a store remodel some of the workers are talking about they would have to retrain it. They'd have to drive the automatic cleaner Zamboni thing down the aisles once again. And so, you know, it's cool in that it can do some of these tasks, but it's also a little annoying. Some of the workers said they almost felt like babysitters for these robots. And so there's this almost level of discontent over like, can't these things just figure it out already? Why do I have to add this onto all the other tasks I've already got?
0: Since Walmart came on the scene, I mean, they've been leaders in the retail industry. They've changed the way a lot of things are done. For a long time, the criticism was they're getting rid of a lot of mom-and-pop shops. Now, with the ever-increasing technology and this notion of automation obviously it makes sense that they're leaders in this but as we've been talking about how are the workers now responding to this it seems like they're frustrated by having to handle the robots it's making their jobs a little more monotonous one of the things that you mentioned in the article was some of these robots that scan the merchandise let's say produce section or something It'll ping a worker saying, hey, this needs to be filled up, but it puts the worker in a different place. Instead of walking the aisles, instead of addressing things as they happen, they're kind of just constantly being pinged with things that need to be paid attention to. It's just a different system for them.
3: It's a new world, right? Like, you know, these robots are increasingly cheap and easy enough for companies to turn on. And so we're going to see these more and more, both in like a working scenario, but also sort of as you're shopping. And so the robots are having to learn, but we, we, the people are having to learn as well, what it's like. And this isn't just Walmart, right? This isn't. We're, we're starting to see these, McDonald's is doing like self-serve kiosk and they're doing, robotics are coming more into hotel scenarios where maybe if you order room service, uh, like a little self-driving robot will bring you out your dinner or something. And so you're starting to see these more and more. We're starting to see them in the kind of the big retail scenarios, like a Walmart where they're America's biggest private employer. They make a ton of money. It makes sense for them to invest in something and roll it out in a big, way and invest like that. But I think we're going to start seeing that filter down more into lots of different types of businesses and smaller types of businesses, because the allure of something that could be consistent and cheap will be really alluring to these companies. But, you know, there's also this worry about, are these companies going to start seeing these robots as so intriguing that they start laying off workers or start putting workers into, like you said, I mean, different jobs with different tasks and different responsibilities. Some of the Walmart workers, they had gotten used to their job being full of lots of different tasks. Maybe they would walk the store at some point checking out shelves. Maybe they would be offloading from a truck. Maybe they would be helping customers, all all these sorts of different little tasks. But now some of those tasks are being taken over by the machines. And so the humans are starting to filter into just the tasks that people can do. And so from that, they're starting to feel like their jobs are feeling more automated in a way. And so I think that's an interesting side effect that we're seeing. You would expect these robots to come on and take all the monotony and all the drudgery, but really there are still lots of little things that humans are expected to do that, that they may prefer leaving somebody yeah. else.
0: How do the executives of Walmart feel this is going and and the future of automation for them?
3: Everything we've heard from them is encouraging. The executives, including the CEO of Walmart, talks about these as being a game changer for them. They're proving that with the money they're spending, right? They're spending millions of dollars and in investing in these projects, finding new robotic contractors to roll in new machines. And so, you know, I think the question is, are they going to continue seeing good results from these? Do they feel like some of these trade-offs are worth it? And where will the dividing line be? I mean, will we get to a point where Walmart is fully automated and it's all robots and no human workers? Or are we going to remain in this middle ground where different tasks are split up between people and machines?
0: Drew Harwell, a AI reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.